I, I remember interviewing someone about estrangement, and she said it was like not quite being killed. I, I'll never forget that line because it really felt so devastating. Um, and although I was armored, you know, and I was I was creating distance from her, you know, the thing is, I just never stopped longing for a connection to her. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Contributing to the common good, even in the smallest of ways, is one of the scientifically proven ways we can age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will excite and inspire you to share your own gifts and talents with the world. Find out more about this podcast, my web courses, and my brand new book, Not Just Chatting, How to Become a Master Podcast Interviewer. Hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at my interviews and other fun tidbits, including many pictures of my new puppy, Frankie. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker. Find out more at judybanker.com. Ever wonder what the host of Zestful Aging does when she's not podcasting? Creating one-of-a-kind earrings, of course. I've just opened an Etsy shop called Zestful Design. No S. And it showcases my fun, comfortable, and zesty polymer earrings. These earrings are fun to make and fun to wear. So check out my new shop, Zestful Design, on Etsy. And as you know, I've got my loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side. So let's begin. We have a fantastic interview for you today. Many of you have heard of the classic book on healing from sexual abuse called Courage to Heal. And if you hadn't heard of it, it is the Bible that therapists uh, used to help their clients heal through sexual abuse. Today, we have the absolute honor of speaking with its co-author, who has written a brand new book about her difficult relationship with her mother. Laura Davis's new memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars, a mother-daughter story, is the riveting story of her embattled relationship with her mother, Teme, their determination to love one another, and the dramatic and surprising collision course they ended up on at the end of Teme's life. For millions of readers of Laura's first book, the Burning Light of Two Stars is both the prequel and sequel of The Courage to Heal, revealing in page-turning intimate detail how Laura reconciled with the mother who betrayed her and came to care for her in her final days. Welcome to the show, Laura. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This is just such a thrill for me. You know, um, as we talked off mic, I've used your book in my clinical practice for so many years. And so to have the opportunity to talk to you about this new book is, is really a thrill for me. Um, can you talk about how this estrangement or describe this estrangement from your mom? What, what was it like? Talk about the relationship. Well, there, you know, there was a time when my mother and I were close to each other. Um, and it, it sort of began to end when I began to assert myself as a separate person. You know, when I was a compliant daughter, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things went really well between us. Um, but I, I grew up in the 60s. I was very rebellious. I made a lot of very non-conventional choices. And my mother always saw it as something I was doing to spite her. You know, I was mm-hmm. doing it to her or because of her, not that I was just exploring and living my own life. Um, and so, you know, we started having trouble when I was an adolescent, I'd say kind of more than typical, Um you know, I, I came out uh, as a lesbian when I was 23, and she said, you've confirmed my worst fear about you. You know, she was such a <laughs> such a drama queen. Um, you know, and she actually, you know, got over that. In a few, three or four years, she overcame that and became a real supporter, you know. And um, she, she always, towards the end of her life, she proudly would introduce my um, spouse, Karen, as her daughter-in-law. So, you know, uh-huh. she got over that. But her first reaction to everything was... It was all about her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And our our more serious or more long-term kind of intractable estrangement um, came about um, when I was 27 years old. I remembered having been sexually abused by my grandfather, you know, her father. And when I came and told her, she, um, you know, she was devastated, but she came back with so much rage and anger and blame. And she, you know, basically lined up with her dead father over her living daughter and, um, you know, didn't believe me and felt I was, you know, I couldn't have hurt her worse if I'd shot her. And, um, you know, it was, it was for me, the worst time in my life. And, and then I was abandoned by her. So it, it was this pretty intense betrayal and at the same time, I began, you know, I was quite young. I teamed up with Ellen Bass, and we started writing the book that became The Courage to Heal. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I wrote the book was, you know, completely devastating to my mother and her whole side of the family, because now I was taking these accusations, what they considered accusations, public. And, you know, when The Courage to Heal took off, and I ended up speaking all over and, you know, in a very public way, being an incest survivor you know, it just create the rift just kept deepening and deepening. And, you know, she was desperate for me to recant and I was desperate for her to believe me. And neither one of us was budging, you know. Um, I mean, that's that, That's why I like the, ti- the title for the book, uh, Burning Light of Two Stars. It was came at the very last minute. I had another working title for many years. And I really like it because we were these two very intense powerhouses, uh-huh. you know, that were uh-huh. just... Like, you know, <laughs> we created a lot of fireworks between us. And, you know, when when I, I remember interviewing someone about estrangement and she said it was like not quite being killed. I, I'll never forget that line because mm-hmm. it really, 
felt so devastating. Um, and although I was armored, you know, and I was I was creating distance from her. You know, I moved three thousand miles away, moved to California. She lived in New Jersey, um, and I felt I needed to set all these boundaries because I felt like I couldn't have her near my healing process when mm-hmm. I was feeling mm-hmm. so incredibly it was vulnerable. Like poison. Yeah, it was like poison. But you know, the thing is, I just never stopped longing for a connection to her. So even though I couldn't have admitted it at the time, there was. There was something between us um, that was really pulling us toward each other, even though anyone looking at the situation would have thought these two people are never going to speak again. And how do you think about that, Laura? Do you see that as partly biological? Is that, you know, cultural, social? I mean, how do you understand the mother-daughter bond? (laughs) It's a good question. I mean, I think it's all those things you mentioned. And I also um, feel like there was a a tie between us that was I almost kind of like beyond time and space. You know, I don't know how to put it because I don't generally talk or think that way. You know, I'm not a very cosmic woo-woo kind of person, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I really felt like I, I always describe this relationship as two souls who could not quit each other. You know, there was just something in both of us that just kept really trying to connect despite, you know, the incredible... Something different than a trauma bond. Something different than that. And I I don't Mm -hmm. see it as, you know, someone else might say, oh, well, you were just codependent or you were just this. Mm. I see it actually as a very positive force. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And that I felt like that kept us really wanting to... And, and like it was, there was something good at the heart. And, and you know, I, I absolutely believe that a lot of my biggest growth in my life came from struggling mm-hmm. through that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a clinician, we often see that the response to the sexual abuse can be more traumatic than mm-hmm. the actual abuse. Uh, that was absolutely true in my case. Um you know, I would when I look, kind of look at my life from the lens of where I am now, um, where the you know the trauma I experienced is kind of I sort of describe it as being in the fabric of the cloth that shaped me, but it's not in my daily identity. I mean, you know, when I was twenty seven, if you said you know who are you, I would say I'm an incest survivor, and mm-hmm. now you know I would say I'm a mother, a grandmother, a spouse a teacher, a workshop Mm. leader, you know, a mahjong player, an author, (laughs) you know, all these other things, a hiker. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't even put it on the list. So, but, you know, it's still, it's still part of what formed me and it creates both strengths and vulnerabilities that I think I'll have till I die. Um, But at that time, it was the pivotal, you know, it was the lens. There's a, there's a epigraph I have in the book that I really love. It was uh, written by a former student of mine, uh, Deborah Fruche, and she said, every time I look in the rearview mirror, the past has changed. And, you know, I just, for me, that the process of writing memoir, um, Mm. because it took me over 10 years to write this, is very much uh, a process of looking in the rearview mirror and watching my history or the stories I told about my history change before my eyes, Mm -hmm. um, which was both um, 
you know, revealing, humbling, embarrassing. Um, you know, I just had all kinds of responses. Um, you know, one of the threads I, I include is my mother and I were correspondents. And this is, you know, pre-email, pre-internet. We wrote letters to each other. Mm -hmm. And when she died, I found all of those letters. Mm -hmm. And I had saved all the letters I had written to her. So when I put them together, I had like a matched set. And <sighs> and it was these oh, two huge, fat file folders. I mean, you know, like a foot thick of letters. Oh, and my goodness. Long letters. And, you know, some of her letters were hostile and bitter. And oh, some of indeed. them were incredibly loving and generous. And I had to accept that we had this ongoing relationship um, through letters when we couldn't see each other or talk to each other in person. And I had kind of, for, you know, I had been saying for years, we didn't speak for seven years, but, you know, it wasn't true. And there was the hard evidence um, in black and mm. white. And so I had to start revising yes. the stories I had told that basically, you know, reinforced my worldview. You know, basically, she screwed me over, and I was wronged. And while there's some truth to that, it's just part of the truth. So for me, mm -hmm. you know, I think for any memoir writer, um, part of the process of writing memoir is an exploration. And you have to be willing to redefine yourself. You have to be willing to find out you were wrong. Um, and I, so that's part of what I explore is that process of realizing, you know, a truth teller can only tell as much of the truth as she knows at the time. And, you know, I had told that truth very publicly for many years. Mm -hmm. And um, so this book mm -hmm. is really a reckoning, not just with her and their relationship, but with myself. Would you read an excerpt from your book to, to give us a, a, a sense of the relationship? Sure. I'll read something. Um, this is, um, you know, most of the book takes place from... Uh, she she sends she calls me one day when she's eighty years old and informs me that she's moving across the country to live in my town for the rest of her life, mm -hmm. and I'm incredibly ambivalent about that. You know, both the longing to heal the relationship and also just like I don't want the intrusion of her in my space in any way. Um, and so. Most of the book is about the seven years um, from the time she moved to California till her death. But there are a fair number of scenes from the past that help to give a sense of the relationship. And the one I want to read is one of those. And this is an edited version, um, just because I didn't want it to be too long. Um, and in this scene, I'm 14 years old. Um, and my mother and I are visiting my grandparents in New York. And it's the same. We're visiting the grandfather who sexually abused me. Mm -hmm. But at 14, I didn't remember it. So I didn't have conscious awareness of what had happened when I was younger. Okay, this is called Dirty Old Man. The summer of 1971, my breasts grew overnight, and I didn't know what to do with them. I covered them with baggy shirts, but they rose like mountains anyway. When I walked down the street, cars slowed and men whistled. I was propositioned all the time. Midway through the summer, Mom and I drove to New York to see Bubby and Papa. At 14, I still had no conscious memory of my grandfather's abuse, but other things about him made me drag my heels that day. 
I was dreading a ritual that had long been practiced in my family. As all the girls, mom, her sisters, and all the girl cousins before me, reached adolescence, Papa insisted that they lift their shirts and bare their budding breasts for his inspection. It was a rite of passage, a family tradition. After we entered the dark apartment, Papa took in my new chest and chuckled with delight. Are they growing yet? I shrunk away from my body until I could no longer feel the sticky summer heat on my skin, just a cool, empty place inside. Mom looked at me expectantly. Papa waited for me to comply. Let me see, just a little peek. He said it lightly. Wasn't this all just an amusing little joke? I fingered the hem of my white peasant shirt. The embroidery on top was turquoise green and gold. They were looking at me, waiting. Papa's eyes gleamed with anticipation. No. The word ignited from somewhere deep inside me. Mom's face hardened. Lori, what's the big deal? Do you have to be so unpleasant? We all did it. I pulled the bottom of my shirt down over my jeans. The words tumbled out of an unfamiliar place. I don't want to. Mom's eyes flared with anger and her shoulders squared. Don't be so uptight, Lori. It will only take a minute. She looked at me appraisingly as she had so many times before. You have a lovely figure. You have nothing to be ashamed of. That's where the memory ends. The only thing I know for sure is that I didn't lift up my shirt and that I was the only girl in my family ever to refuse. Sometimes when I think back to this moment, I imagine it happening at another time of year, with our whole family crammed into that tiny apartment. In that version, I see my teenage self standing up to all of them, every one of my aunts and cousins, all the women and girls, the ones from the past and the ones from the future, all the Ross women, generations of them, shouting, Why are you making such a big deal about this? We all did it. A whole chorus of shirtlifters clamoring for me to bare my chest. Just one look. Give the dirty old man one look. But I didn't listen to any of them. Not the ones who were there. Not the ones in my head. A kernel of resistance rose up inside me. I said no. It would be years before I'd remembered what had happened with Papa when I was small. But someone fierce woke up inside me that day. She soon dropped back into slumber. But she was there. Hi, listeners. A quick interruption to tell you about a powerful tool I actually rediscovered after 15 years that will help you with stress, anxiety, and depression. I'm talking about the Meditations from Health Journeys created by trauma expert Bella Ruth Napperstack. When I had to have major surgery many years ago, I listened to these meditations and it was enormously helpful. 
Health journeys meditations are a little different than the run-of-the-mill meditations that you can find on apps. They're scientifically created and are used in over three thousand hospitals. I highly recommend them and I use them myself. You can go to zestfulaging.com or nicolechristina.com and you will see a direct link. I hope you find them helpful and I'm interested in your experience. Now back to the show. I'm trying to imagine your predicament, knowing how angry your mother was getting and disapproving and, and, and just trying to imagine what that was like for you. Yeah, it's, it was, um, you know, basically she was, at that point in my life anyway, you know, she was such a huge force to be reckoned with. She was a, she was a force of nature, you know, um, incredibly dynamic, powerful, emotional. And I responded by, um, you know, shutting down and being kind of cold and unemotional. You know, I just tried to be the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so for me to stand up to her was really, really unusual. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so you know, the, the weird thing is that, you know, in my family, everyone will readily acknowledge this ritual, but they can't imagine you know, that he possibly sexually abused me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Never quite understood that dichotomy. How it got normalized. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, so we're talking about after this kind of relationship and after this continued betrayal and, and pain that you were still able to find a way to not only reconcile with her, but to take care of her tenderly as she developed dementia. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, you know, there's, there's something else actually I want to read, just a little tiny short section about why I did it. Um, and, you know, like what, what motivated me to do the incredible, really spiritual work and emotional lift mm -hmm. to get to the point where I could become her caregiver. Um, and, and this is, you know, after she first moved to California um, when she was 80, and she was, you know, starting to decline. And, uh, you know, she was having a hard time. She was living alone in a mobile home park. And I went to visit her one day after I'd been teaching out of town, and I was so ambivalent. You know, my relationship with her was just so incredibly ambivalent. And on the surface, you know, I was going through the motions of being the good daughter. You know, I was doing the right things. I was responsive. I was getting her resources. I was going to doctor's appointments with her. Mm -hmm. But on the inside, I was still um, shut down and often, you know, angry, resentful. I just had, you know, I just was so mixed about her. Mm -hmm. um, so this is after a visit with her where I 
basically was kind of faking it, you know, and I and she was having a really hard time and I just couldn't touch my own compassion for her. Mm. And so um, this is the little section I want to, to read. Three decades earlier, I had erected an impenetrable wall between us, a fortress with narrow slits so I could watch her approach. I ensured that my defenses were prepared any time she came near me, I always had an escape plan. It's true we later reconciled, and the fact that we were able to create a functional relationship was a miracle. But it wasn't an intimate miracle, because I never took down my wall. Oh, I taught myself to be kind to her in a fake-it-till-you-make-it kind of way. But I still held her at bay. My wall just got subtler. It wasn't permeable. It was hard and opaque, and there was no door. We only met in the antechamber, the common room where guests are received. Only my polished self was on display, my masked self, and only in the antechamber. Mom never saw my inner sanctum, and I never saw hers. I got as close as I could within the constraints I had established. But closed is closed, and a closed heart is a lonely one. The price I paid to keep my mother out at first with withdrawal, later with an armed fortress, and finally with the polite rules of detente, was love. The pure, unfettered love I longed for. The pure, unfettered love she craved. That day in her kitchen when I couldn't comfort her, I had to face it. My mother was still a stranger to me, with tentacles of need I was loath to touch. I wanted to be more than kind, to do more than merely what was right. I wanted to love my mother, just once, freely and with the relief of a lost, exhausted child, beyond words and beyond all pretense. I wanted to lay my head on a place that was safe, just once, before it was too late. So I think that that desire um, motivated me, you know, and, um, you know, I, and her arrival, um, and and her dementia and all the and you know people who have dealt with someone with um, dementia there were lots of explosive emotions and mm-hmm. panic and anger and rage and instability and you know all those qualities um, triggered all the pain uh, from the past you know so by the time my mom came out to California. I would have said that we had reconciled, you know, and that we had mm-hmm. um, healed our relationship, and we had yeah. to a large degree. But there was still, as I just read, this wall. No intimacy. Um, no intimacy. And then when she went, I just started getting so triggered uh, by the proximity. You know, I think our our reconciliation had been successful in part because there was always a cushion of distance between us. Mm-hmm. And when that was, and that's why I was so afraid when she said she was coming. And then when she came and that cushion was no longer there and she became increasingly needy and demanding and um, it was really, really hard. It was you, an incredible what, challenge. <laughs> what role did the dementia play? Um, I, I'm just sort of... Th- trying to understand, you know, that overlay and what was that like for you? Did that help in some way change your relationship with her in that it was very clear she 
had cognitive impairments and was needy and and powerless. I mean, were those factors in your ability to feel closer? Uh it, it, it it's a great question, and it really had a huge impact. And it was different at different times because her dementia kept changing, you know. Um, and also, her dementia was inconsistent. Like I, I used to describe it like if you if you have like an old fashioned radio dial where you turn the knob, it would be like a radio station coming in and out of um, reception. You know, sometimes I would talk to her and she would be like incredibly lucid, like she had no mental impairment. And then the next day, or it could even be the same day, I'd come back and see her again and she'd be disheveled and she um, couldn't remember what was said, you know, five seconds ago. It would be impossible to converse with her and she'd have this kind of blank, empty. So it was just the disease itself drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of terms of our relationship, I think that... You know, as I gained power and she lost power, I felt safer. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's mm-hmm. it's not really easy to admit that. Yeah. Although, you know, I, I admitted it on the page, so I might as well say so here. <laughs> but um, as as I, I liked being in charge of her, you know, I liked having control over mm-hmm. choices about mm-hmm. her life. Um, and I, you know, really had to grapple with um, not taking advantage of the position I was in. You know, because, you know, everyone was like, oh, you're such a good daughter. I I wish I had a daughter like you. You're so good to your mother. Um, But, you know, I knew that on the inside that, like, again, I was going through the motions. um, But I also had this control over her. Um, You know, also her dementia could have gone in different directions. You know, I expected her to turn bitter and nasty you know, and to become even more difficult emotionally than she had been all my life. And instead, she turned sweet. Mm -hmm. And she turned incredibly loving. You know, I'd walk into her, she was in assisted living at one point, I'd walk in and she'd just say, "Uh, you're the best daughter in the whole world. Mm -hmm. And it's like these words I had longed longed to hear my whole life. And yet, who was it coming from? You know, was she still my mother? She, you know, and so I kept having a relationship to a different mother. Um, Hard to know how that reconciliation would have gone had she not developed dementia. Well, yeah, you just never know the answer to anything that didn't happen. Um, mm. But it, it, it was an opportunity for me, and um, it also was incredibly challenging, you know, and, you know, I think anyone who is caring for someone with dementia, you're grieving the whole time they're declining. You know, you don't have to wait till they die to start grieving because you're losing the person you had. And even my mother, who had been so problematic to me, uh, when she started to become passive and sweet, I kind of missed her fiery, intense self because that's the mother that would been like, the center of my existence my whole life. You know, I was always acting in response to her, whether I was wanting to be close to her, whether I was distancing myself from her, whether I was trying not to be like her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was like she was like the sun and I was orbiting around her. Um, and suddenly I was the sun and, and she was dependent on me for everything. How important was your your spouses, your wives, 
perspective because she would sometimes offer you a different view. Karen was incredibly helpful. I mean, on every level, you know, I was, um, during the time of my mother's decline, you know, we had two teenage children. So like we were in the sandwich generation, just really squeezed on both sides. And I was traveling a lot. I was teaching um, writing workshops uh, all over the world. And I, and Karen, when I left town, Karen would step in with my mother um, and, you know, do all the things that I would have done. So she was, she showed up. She's, she, Karen is someone who never shirks the hard things in life. Like she just shows up and it's mm-hmm. one of her incredible qualities. Um, but aside from that, she really always took my mother's side. I don't mean against me, you know, I, I didn't feel she was against me, but I think I still was carrying forward a lot of stories and judgments about my mother based on our relationship in the past. And I would um, readily repeat those stories um, to other people so that it kind of, in a way, poisoned their perception of her. They didn't get to just meet her as she was. Mm-hmm. They met her through the lens of the disgruntled daughter mm-hmm. or the formerly wronged daughter. And mm-hmm. Karen really worked to help me let go of that. Um, and to, I mean, she she confronted me. There's a, a scene in the book where she confronts me about how I'm acting towards my mother. And it was really, really difficult, but she was spot on, you know? And it was a, it was a huge turning point for me. Um, because she had the you know, she had the courage to confront me and to just say, "Hey, you know, I really think this is wrong what you're doing." Mm-hmm. So she Boy, was that really must have been hard to hear. <laughs> well, <laughs> my first response, like it always is when I'm confronted, is I didn't do it; it didn't happen. <laughs> and then I and then I go think about it. You know, like I think I I ended up you know walking on the beach uh, later that day and just really let her her words take root. You know, and then it took me a while before I could come back to her and say, you were right. Mm. Because I, apologies are not that easy for me. I'm working. I've been working on them for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, I think that so many people can appreciate uh, sort of a, an ambivalence, a, pr- a profound ambivalence towards a loved one. And possibly not to the extent that you had been betrayed by your mom, but I'm wondering if you have any helpful words for people who are experiencing this desire to have some kind of reunification, all the while knowing it's going to be imperfect. What what can you say to our audience about how they might heal a really damaged relationship? Well, you know, I, um, I, about 20 years ago, um, I, I wrote a book called I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, which goes step by step kind of into this whole question of reconciliation. So I, I can't possibly <laughs> summarize everything in there <laughs> okay. in an answer. But, you know, I think one of the most important things is that there are a lot of different types of reconciliation and that, you know, we often have in our mind this kind of like movie scene of like the deathbed reconciliation, mm-hmm. you know, where like at the end of someone's life, the, 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 the uh, you know, child, the prodigal child comes back <laughs> and, you know, they, they have this forgiveness and this resolution and, you know, it's like the violins are playing. And I think we, we have a desire for that kind of reconciliation or for the kind of reconciliation where there's really 
a true deep healing and intimacy is either reestablished or established for the first time. And, you know, it does happen. I, I have had those experiences, and I've interviewed many people who also have had those experiences. But it's actually the rarest outcome in terms of resolving an estranged relationship. Um, you know, what my mother and I did at the core of our reconciliation, the first phase of it anyway, was we agreed to disagree. And we we made a, I think there was, we both saw there was enough value in the relationship separate from the issue that was like this giant turd in the middle of the room, you know, my grandfather's sexual abuse. And, you know, we gave up trying to convince each other, you know, so we, we gave up trying to make the other person wrong and us right. Mm. Um, and, and once we did that, the kind of the tension went out of the relationship and we were free to begin to find alternative ways to connect. You know, like my mother and I both love the theater. You know, so when I would visit her, we would go see a Broadway show, mm-hmm. you know, and have lunch. Or, um, you know, we loved books. We would trade books back and forth. We liked cooking in the kitchen together. So we would, you know, make a meal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we just started building threads of connection that were mm-hmm. not focused on this huge, unresolvable issue. And... You know, I basically let her have her point of view, and she let me have my point of view. And for me, that can only happen when I'd done a lot of healing. Um, I had to get to the point where I felt like I had already healed a lot from the abuse in order to let go of needing anything from her around it. You know, when when it stopped being at the core of my identity and began to recede into my history... Uh, that's when it was possible for me to make that kind mm. of switch. And I'm not sure what it was for her. Um, so that's that's one way. Um, and it, again, that's not going to lead to a particularly intimate relationship, but it actually, you could have a really viable relationship based mm. on other things. And that's um, different than forgiveness. It is different than forgiveness is really a separate um, a separate issue. There was a, there was a woman I interviewed um, that I... I, I never forgot her story. She she had been really violently sexually abused by her father and all her siblings had been. I think there were seven of them. And it, the abuse had gone on till she was 18 and left home. And she was the only person in the family to call it out. And she was completely ostracized from, you know, cast out of the family for more than two decades. Mm. And she said, she, she went off, she created her own life. And then she said she started really thinking about her mother a lot and she, her mother was really into the Bible, and everyone in their family was into handwork of some kind. And so she started knitting, not knitting, stitching a sampler um, using embroidery of her mother's favorite psalm. And she said she worked on it every day for six months, and she would just stitch love into every stitch of that sampler. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the time, she sent it to her mother as a Christmas gift, um, and then sometime after that, she was invited to come visit. And so she went, and there was the sampler up on the wall in this very prominent place. Um, and, and then she said her sister, who she hadn't spoken to in many years, uh, every time she would walk into one room, her sister would walk out, and they just kept avoiding each other. And finally, she sat in the living room under the sampler, and she took out her knitting, and she started to knit. And her sister came into the room, sat up in the opposite um, couch, looked up at the sampler and said, that's very nice. And then she mm-hmm. took out her knitting and she started to mm-hmm. knit. 
And from that mm-hmm. moment, the two sisters began healing their relationship. And 10 years later, they were very close. And I just love that image of knitting together, you know, and this mm-hmm. this kind of indirect approach. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't, I think many people believe the only way to reconcile is to have everything out and to talk everything through mm-hmm. and to do it with a... Th- no. Uh, most of the people I know with successful reconciliations, that that's the least common. I mean, it's wonderful when that can happen, Mm -hmm. but this other kind of pathway I'm talking about is another way to reconnect. Um, And the last thing I want to say is that sometimes it is not a good idea to try to reconcile with someone. You know, um, you know, I don't like, I don't want people to read my story and, and get the message or think that I'm saying that reconciliation is always optimal Mm -hmm. because there are definitely many situations where someone is far too toxic Mm. uh, and the best choice is to separate. But even in that instance, on the inside, there still is a path to reconciliation. And and I think it often does involve forgiveness, um, coming to terms with what happened, seeing the relationship from a much vaster vantage point. So it's, it's not just this brother and sister or this mother and daughter. But, you know, with my mother, I started looking at her history. I started looking at the epigenetics of trauma in our family line. Um, I looked at the fact that she was raised by this grandfather, you know, who had abused me. And I just looked at the bigger picture and Mm -hmm. it stopped feeling so personal. Yes. Yes. So, you know, and and I think even when there's like no chance of reconciliation, um, sometimes people can go to like a skilled therapist or mediator and work out what I call terms of engagement just to be like to be at a wedding together. Like maybe the terms of engagement might be, you know, the, the, the adult child might say, um, I'll come, but I'm not sitting at a table with dad, mm-hmm. you know, or I refuse to um, pose for any family pictures you know, or, you know, whatever, you know, or or maybe you could see the grandchildren, but it's going to be supervised. Or mm-hmm. So I think, you know, there's a whole range of, of, I wouldn't call them solutions, but directions that people can go on mm-hmm. um, that can bring some relief. And ultimately, you know, the, the opposite of estrangement is not reconciliation, it's peace. Mm-hmm. So how can you come to peace with the relationship? And it may not look the way you hope it will, yeah. but you can still get there. And there's a wonderful podcast, um, and uh, uh, the host has been on my show. You may be familiar with it. It's called The F Word. And she talks, Maria talks a lot about, you know, that forgiveness is actually for you, um, looks at the research and all of this, but that doesn't mean you're you're buddies. It doesn't mean you, you know, you hang out together, but it might mean that you work towards some peace in yourself so that your life is not bound up with, with still these, this pain and resentment and anger. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging journey, but, you know, for me, absolutely worthwhile. And I think it, it has, it has influenced me in my capacity for love. It has influenced me in my capacity for compassion. Um, you know, I've got some issues now with family members where we're on different sides of some of the, um, you know, political and health divides that are happening right now. And even though I'm upset about it, I also have this love and compassion right up alongside it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, 
you know, many people right now um, are challenged. You know, all over the world, there are these divisions going on. And, you know, I think families are really being torn apart. Countries are being torn apart, you know, and um, anything we can do to listen to each other from a deep place, I think really starts to make a difference. I know when I've had, when I've been teaching writing workshops and there are people who are hold different points of view and they really start telling stories, true stories from the deepest part of them, it's like that polarization starts to melt away. Mm-hmm. You know, because the the humanity rises up and people begin to focus on what they have in common. And it's kind of like they go underneath the belief system Mm -hmm. into this deep sea of humanity. And that's Mm -hmm. where they connect. And that's that's why I just, you know, for me uh, as a writing teacher, those writing circles are just incredibly powerful and and really transformative. I I think it's so important right now. There's a project I'm I'm aware of uh, whereby the mothers, Israeli mothers and Palestinian mothers are together and their children have been killed and them sharing this experience. And as you say, you know, connecting with the humanity um, and um, going underneath those those beliefs that is has been very successful. Um, and healing. Can you, Laura, tell us where our listeners can find out more about the book, about your workshops, and your your other projects? Okay. Um, the best way to reach me is at my website, uh, lauradavis.net, and that has all my links to social media and everything else. And um, in terms of the book, I have posted on my site the first five chapters. Um, mm-hmm. So you can... Um, go there and read the first five chapters. Um, and the link for that is um, lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book is just, just came out. Um, it's for sale everywhere books are available. And there's lots of links on my site to um, all kinds of places where you can get a copy. It's also uh, an audiobook. I did the recording myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could, if you prefer to listen uh, and you like to hear an author read their own work, mm-hmm. um, you could do it that way. It's also paperback and ebook. And um, if you're interested in writing workshops, retreats, or classes, um, being part of a sacred writing circle, you could also find out about that at lauradavis.net. I want to thank you so much for sharing this um, this time with us and, and the story of the healing process with your mother. I think we can all relate to some aspect of wanting to heal with a loved one and, and really being stuck perhaps and, and, and find some finding some hope in your story. So I I so appreciate you spending the time. I've loved talking to you. You're super easy to talk to. And um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. 
But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.